So tonight we're going to finish our series on the book of Jonah, our study throughout the book of Jonah. I'm excited about that. Actually, I'm kind of sad about it because I've really enjoyed this series. I mean, any one of you enjoyed the study as well? It's been, it's been fun, the depths of God's grace. Um, I don't think we're going to be finished with the depths of God's grace, though. <laughs> I'm still going to be learning about the gospel. I still need to hear the gospel, and I still need grace. But tonight, we're going to finish this story, this magnificent, well-written story. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to weave past the, the grand climax of the story where God gets the last word, and we're going to come to the end. Don't you just love it when you read a book and you get to that last page and it says the end period? And that's, isn't that a good feeling? No? I, maybe you're like me. I don't know what that feels like. I've never finished a book. I always go on to the next book before I finish the last book. But nevertheless, I do like that feeling when you get to the very end of a story. And what's going to happen to us, like, like it happens all the time we get to the end of a story, is we have to ask ourselves, now that we've experienced all that the author wanted us to experience, now that we've seen and heard and felt all that we needed to see and hear and feel, we can now ask ourselves, what's the story really about? What's it really about anyway? And what we're going to see tonight is that even though we may call this story Jonah or Jonah and the whale, it's really not about neither of those. <laughs> it's not about Jonah and it's not about a whale. So what's it really about? Well, you may know this, but every good story has to have at least two main characters in the story, right? A protagonist and an antagonist. The protagonist is the one who's agonizing or fighting for the pro, the good. And the antagonist is the one who's not fighting for the good, who's fighting against the good. And so as we've studied this story, who do you think the protagonist is and who do you think the antagonist is? Well, certainly one of the main characters is Jonah, right? Is he a protagonist? Not really. He's not for any good, is he? He's actually fighting against the good. So I guess we could say he's the antagonist. So who's the one who fights for the good? Who's the one who's agonizing for the good? And as we read this story, we realize it's not Jonah. It's certainly not the fish. It's God. God is the one who's wrestling for the good. And so the story is really about God. Incidentally, I, I could tell you that the whole Bible is really a story about God, but you knew that. It's a big story about God. And this little story that we call Jonah is a mini story within that grand story, which tells the exact same story, but only in mini form. What, what I mean by that is scholars will call the grand story, the meta narrative, which simply is a fancy way of saying the big story. <laughs> But we have this many stories within the big story that tell the same story in a different way. Incidentally, our children are going through some curriculum right now. And that curriculum um, it teaches them the meta narrative of the Bible. And they'll know it as the big God story. It's all about God who's on a mission to save people who are far from him. Now, if you were to ask me, I think that the best name for that story is the Missio Dei or the mission of God. It's about a God who's on a mission to save people who are far from him. In fact, the missionary character of God is evidenced by the fact that he's always sending. He's sending and sending and sending. He sends angels. He sends prophets. He sends his Messiah. Even in this story, the story of Jonah, he sends Jonah, go to Nineveh. And then he sends a storm and he sends a fish and he sends a tree and he sends a worm and he sends a bitter east wind. God is ascending God. He's a missionary God and he's after people's souls. He's after people's hearts. 
And so tonight we're going to learn that God is a missionary God who is in the business of saving souls. In fact, if I could go even further, this story is four chapters long, right? Chapter one, two, three, and four. And we're on chapter four. Um, Right in the very middle of the story, it pivots. At chapter 2, verse 9, the very center of the story. And at chapter 2, verse 9, Jonah's in the belly of the fish, and he cries out, and he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. So that's the pivot of the whole story. Salvation is of God. And we're going to see tonight that God saves. First, he's going to save Jonah, which is interesting. And second, he's going to save the city. So we're going to see tonight two things. God saves Jonah and God saves the city. So you ready? Let's talk about Jonah. God's going to save Jonah. Now, last week we left Jonah. He was furious with God. And we talked about being angry with God. And Jonah was so mad, God asked him this question. Is it good for you to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? And honestly, Jonah never really answered that question last week. Not through verse 6. Instead, he leaves and he goes up onto a hill and, the, and this story says he builds a booth or a tent for himself, a little house, and he gets inside this little house and he's looking over the city because he wants to see how this story is going to end. How's this story? Go- see, Jonah doesn't realize that he's the antagonist in this story and the story's not going to end until the protagonist finishes his business with the antagonist. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't know that he's the ending of this story eventually. So he's just sitting there waiting to see how it's going to end. And the protagonist is still fighting for the good. And he's going to develop an argument that in the end is going to win, right? God's going to win. <laughs> and he, God's going to build an argument that's a home run, if you know what I mean. I, I like to say he, he's going to hit the nail out of the park, okay? It's going to be an awesome argument. You can't, as a matter of fact, the story just ends with God's argument. He's going to build this argument, the end. And we're just left with the argument, And here's how God's going to do it. He's going to build an a fortiori argument. Anyone know what an a fortiori argument is? Anyone in debate class? An a fortiori, and I even really know if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm doing it with an Italian accent and I'm from Texas, but nevertheless. An a fortiori argument basically starts with the least to the greatest. You start with a small thing and then you say, if that's true, then the big thing must also therefore be true. So it typically ends with, if this is true... How much more, therefore, ergo, shall this be true? Incidentally, our Lord Jesus Christ was very fond of that kind of argument. He used it a lot. You can see it several times in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. For instance, he says, If you, being a wicked man, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God, your Father in heaven, give good gifts to you when you ask? Or when Jesus says, If God is concerned for the little birds and the little flowers, how much more? Will he be concerned for you? And so God's going to develop this argument that's going to win. And here's what he's going to do. You already know. He's going to send a plant. The plant's going to grow up, shade Jonah's head. Then God's going to send a worm to kill that plant. And then God's going to send a bitter east hot wind. You could say he turns up the heat to make Jonah miss that tree. And then when he misses the tree, God's going to say, aha, you loved this little thing. How much more, therefore, ergo, should you love this big thing? The end. (laughs) I hope I didn't spoil the story for you. I think you already knew that's where it's going. So now that we know where it's going, we know what God's doing with this argument, I want us to look at verse six because I don't want us to miss this. this. This is fascinating to me. Look at what happens. It says, now the Lord God appointed a plant and it made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head, listen to this, to save him from his discomfort. 
So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. I don't think it's an accident. I think it's purposefully ironic that God, the God of salvation, salvation belongs to the Lord, saves Jonah from his discomfort? The, the, the narrator uses this word salvation, I think on purpose. He saves him from his discomfort. And then, I guess you could say, and I'm going to say, that if God saves him from his discomfort, when God takes the tree away and turns up the heat, if you will, we might be able to say God's saving him from his comfort. Uh-oh. Do you know where I'm going with this? <laughs> It is true that God is in the business of salvation, and I believe that he can save us from our discomfort, and that would be a wonderful sermon for another day. But tonight, I think we need to ask ourselves, maybe what we need salvation from is our comfort. Can I get an amen? Who wants to amen that? Amen. All right, you, you do. Okay, I can help you with that. <laughs> maybe God needs to save us from our comfort. So, so let me just ask this question. What is this story really about? Who, who really is the antagonist in this story? And honestly, I kind of tricked you in the beginning because I said it was Jonah. But if you were following along with the whole study, we've been saying you are Jonah. The story is about you. You're Jonah. So you're Jonah. You're the antagonist. God's fighting against you. He's asking you, if you love your comfort so much, how much more should you love this great city? Are we not like Jonah? Are we not exceedingly happy over our comfort? So God's gonna turn the tables. It's no coincidence. The story ends with the question because God turns the tables. He leaves it in the hands of the reader. What now say you? I love my comfort. So I think we should discuss this. And I want to ask a deep, heavy question. And for those of you who are, uh, well, let me just say this. Let me just, let me just say, you know, quote Timothy Keller so I can back myself up here. He says, the antagonist is the religious, moral people who believe in God and who obey his commandments. It's us. It's city disdaining, city phobic, religious, moral, good people. We're the ones that God's fighting against to love the city. So for those of you who are visiting, we, we're sitting in circles and tables. We do that because we believe in community. It's a, it's a part of our mission statement. We want to build and foster true community. So I think that even in church, we can have community. Isn't that what church is? And so we're, we're gathered together to have community. And so I'm going to put a question on the screen, and that's for you to discuss at your table. And if you're shy and don't like to talk out loud, you don't have to. Um, there's, I can see at every table there's someone who will talk for you. So there's always a talker. So here's the question. And, and, and tonight, since we're at the end of this series, it's going to get deep. Uh, we're going to ask this question, answer this question. What needs to change in the American church? And then I decided, no, 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 no. Let's don't get all up here and talk about the church. Let's talk about us. Scratch that. What about you? What needs to change in you before you are more concerned for people than for your own comfort? So maybe we need to pray like Rich Mullins prayed in one of his songs that God would actually save us from our comfort. One of Rich's earliest albums, which sounds really old when you listen to it. Uh, but I liked it because this is one of his angry songs. I would say it's his angry song. And I was angry for a long time. And maybe still am. 
And I love this, this, this line. It says, save me from the slick pop sounds laid down in virgin vinyl grooves. That comes from a musician. Um, save me from any woman who'd be turned on to the aftershave I use. Save me from trendy religion that makes cheap cliches out of timeless truths. Lord, save me. And throughout that song, he's praying, Lord, save me from comfort. Save me from these the ways that it's easy for me to get sucked into the music industry. It's easy for me to get sucked into whatever, Christianity that becomes trendy and cliche rather than real. I want real. Jesus, not fake Jesus. It's clear from this story that God loves Jonah. That's what we've been talking about. God is pursuing Jonah. God, God is trying to get Jonah to, Jonah to see that his priorities are out of whack. And he's spending a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of expense, if you will, to get Jonah to see that his priorities are out of whack. He loves Jonah. And so he saves him from his discomfort. And I would say he even saves him from his comfort so that he can see where he needs to be. God's not going to let Jonah be a fat, lazy evangelical <laughs> who, doesn't, who doesn't see his need to love others. He's going to make him, he's going to fight for the good for Jonah as well. So the second part that we're going to see is God loves the city. And this is, this is the very end of the, the, the story. God says, okay, so if you're so concerned and you're so happy about this tree, how much more should you be concerned? Should I be concerned? Should we be concerned for that great city that has 120,000 people who don't know their left hand from their right and also much cattle? And so the weight of God's argument is clearly on the city side, right? Okay, it's okay that you're excited about your comfort, but if that's how excited you're about your comfort, then take that excitement and multiply it times what? For 120,000 people who don't know their left hand from their right. God loves the city. And so what I want to do right now is talk a little bit about God's love for the city. He says, should I not be concerned for that city? And that word in Hebrew, concerned, is a very powerful word. It literally means that he's moved to compassion. You know, like when we see Jesus get off the boat and he sees the people and he's moved to compassion. God is moved to pity. He's moved to love this great city. And so God says, should I not love this great city? Do we love this great city? Are we moved to compassion for St. Louis? the gateway to the West, are we concerned for St. Louis, the city that's hit the top of the charts for brutal crime per capita for so many years? What do you think? I don't think that we're concerned for the city. But I think that God is calling us to love this great city. He wants us to love this city. But one could argue and they have, that with the development of the suburban sprawl and the great white flight here in St. Louis, that we aren't concerned for the city. In fact, it seems like we're more concerned for our comfort. So I want to build an argument for, our, for the city. And before I do, because I know what some of you might be thinking, oh no, he's going to say, you know, he's going to be like radical and say, I need to sell my house and move to the city. And, and that's not what I'm going to say. What I want to do is build an argument for the city and then have a discussion question and then afterwards build an argument for suburbia. Because I, I don't think that we should leave suburbia just because God says, you know, he loves the city, <laughs> whatever. 
that was a joke. You're supposed to laugh. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so what about the city? When I was in seminary, I read a book by an author named Rodney Stark. It changed my worldview. It changed the way I saw things. And this book was titled The Cities of God. And he documents, as a sociologist, how all the great cities in the early church were the cause of Christianity becoming the movement that it became. And he talks about how these cities like Antioch and, and Corinth and Athens were all major metropolises. And because the movement started there, it eventually converted all of Rome. And that's how early Christianity developed. In fact, he says in that book, um, he says, all ambitious missionary movements are or soon become urban if the goal is to make disciples of all nations, then missionaries need to go where there are many potential converts, which is precisely what Paul did. His missionary journeys took him to major cities such as Antioch and Corinth and Athens with only occasional visits to smaller communities such as Iconium and Laodicea. No mention is made of Paul preaching in the countryside. And he goes on to say, but this isn't just unique to Paul. It's the whole New Testament. If you want to change the world, you start in the city. If you want to change the culture, you go to the city. It's in the city where you find culture. It's in the city where you have the pinnacle of art and education and politics. If we want to influence culture, we have to do it in the city. Timothy Keller, who planted a church in New York City and now leads a movement called City to City, where he's, his goal is to plant churches in London and Berlin and Chicago. He wants to influence the cities. He says, you're one of the bearers of the gospel, right? You've been given good news. So what are you going to do with that good news? He says, well, you don't take that message with you to some little comfortable corner of the world. How dare you? He goes on to say, in the village, you reach individuals, but in the city, you reach the culture. In the village, you might reach the artist, but if you want to reach the art world, it's in the city. In the village, you might reach the lawyer, but if you want to reach the legal profession, it's in the city. And then he goes on to say that there's no biblical warrant that says that every Christian is called to live in the city, but the church institutionally, and then he says he hates that word, but nevertheless, as an institution, the church is called by God to give a great comma, if not the greatest comma, part of its metabolism, its power, its resources, and its concern to the city. God is calling us to the city. If we want to reach the world, if we want to influence culture, we have to do it in the city. Should I not be concerned for that great city? Do you notice how many times in this four short chapters God calls it the great city? In the very first chapter, he says, Jonah, very first thing we hear, and the Lord came to Jonah saying, go to that great city. And then in chapter three, he says it again, go to that great city. And then the narrator elaborates and says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. And then the very last thing we hear is God saying, should I not be concerned for that great city? And then he elaborates, full of 120,000 people who don't know their left hand from their right, which means they're lost spiritually, they can't make right choices, and also much cattle. And what is that about anyway? <laughs> Why does the whole book end with the word cattle? <laughs> it's like the story, and also much cattle, period. It's like we're missing something. Why does God bring up the cattle? Well, it probably means that God's a Texan. <laughs> or if not, it means this. 
The word great has two meanings in, in, in the Hebrew. It means large, right? So a lot of people, 120,000 people, but it also means important. And that's why they use the word great instead of just the word big or the word large. It's an important strategic city. It's got culture. It's got art. It's got food. It's got cattle. It's got everything we need. It's an important city. Should I not be concerned for that important city? Are we concerned for the city? Maybe if we lived in a better city. I, I think we should be concerned for St. Louis. I want to be concerned for St. Louis. So, so here's the next question, and then we'll talk about suburbia. What must we do now to begin to be concerned for St. Louis? How can we start now to influence this great city? What can or what will you do? Okay, so some of you are thinking, gee whiz, I'm already too busy. What am I supposed to add this city to my list? <laughs> Pick up the kids from soccer, <laughs> pay the taxes, they're still due. And, oh yeah, influence the city. <laughs> but God loves the great city. And he's calling us to love the great city too. And St. Louis needs some saints loving on that city. So let's discuss that at our table. How can we begin to influence and have a heart for the city? I want to talk a little bit about suburbia because obviously I'm planting a church in the burbs. So um, I don't necessarily think that we all need to sell our house and move to the city. Although I believe that God's calling some people in this room to do that. And I want to help you do that if that's where you want to go. But, but, but I think ministry in suburbia is even more difficult, even harder, because in, Amer in American suburban culture, there's still just as many problems. It's just shrink-wrapped and candy-coated. For instance, almost every single one of us in this room tonight can go home and step out on your front lawn, and you can look to the left, and you can look to the right, and with your naked eye, you'll see 30, 40, 50 houses that have the exact same lawn as you do. They may even use the same fertilizer, and they may get it from the same Home Depot. <laughs> and if you really, I mean, how many movies have illustrated this, you know, with the guy in his bathrobe and he goes out and gets his newspaper with his coffee and he looks down the row and there's 10 guys doing the same thing. It's like, yeah, you're doing it. And he goes back in the house. And, and in many cases, they have the same exact house, the same floor plan. It's creepy. <laughs> and so there's thousands of people on one block that all look exactly the same. And from the outside, they look like they have it all together and everything is perfect and candy coated and, and, and it's filled with ticky tacky and it's lined up in a row, if you know what I'm talking about. And it looks so good. But we know, because we live there, that it's not. That the promise of suburbia, that this is the good life, is not really all that good of a life. And so there's a lot of brokenness and there's a lot of people in suburbia who don't know their left hand from their right hand and divorce is rampant and addiction is rampant and, and adultery and pornography and all of that is rampant. Debt is rampant and we're broken. But we look good and our lawns look good. So I think that God isn't calling us to abandon suburbia, although that would be radical if we went all to the city. But, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. And so when I dreamed of planting this church called Missio Dei, honestly, I wanted to go to the city. I wanted to go to Del Mar Loop. And I wanted to get a tattoo. And I wanted to love those people. And Kelly was with me on the tattoo part. 
And we prayed about it and we prayed about it and and we drove around in Maplewood and Clayton in that area and said, Lord, where would you call? I want to, because of Rodney Stark's book, I wanted to influence a city. And if you look at the education down there, there's a lot of universities. There's a lot of influence that can be done in the art world, in the, in the political world. I mean, there's just a lot in our city. But then it became clear to me that this church plant didn't have to be our only church plant. In fact, if we're going to call ourselves Missio Dei, then, which means the sending of God, the mission of God, then perhaps we should plant lots of churches into the city. And it also occurred to me that I am a suburbanite. I do eat at Chick-fil-A. And so, and so I live in suburbia. And God was leading me to think what really needs to happen is we need to minister to people who are hurting in suburbia and give them a heart for the city so that we can also influence the city, so we can plant churches from suburbia into the city. And then that would make both better. Don't you think that would work? I think that would work. I'm, I'm banking on it, to be honest with you. And so I created this little video that talked about our vision and where Missy O'Day was going. And it occurred to me as I was preparing for this message that a lot of you haven't seen this video because I made it a couple years ago. So I'm just going to show it real quick. It talks about Missy O'Day. And, and I think part of um, the vision of reaching out into the city. So that's what I envision for this church. I want to grow here, develop leaders. If there's a, any family who wants to go a little bit more towards the city, then we just say, hey, you can be that host family to start that next church. And we begin to minister there. And then the two are connected and we support each other financially. We support each other through prayer. We're one church in lots of different places. What do you guys think? You think it's a good idea? Okay, cool, good. You guys maybe get more excited about it after you fall asleep a little bit and wake up and get excited about it maybe tomorrow. All right, cool. Well, let me know when you get excited about it. I'm going I'm to keep talking about it until we get excited about it here because I really do believe that that's what we need. We need lots of churches that reach lots of different kinds of people, different flavors, different styles, different colors. Um, I can't go down there and plant a black church, although I wish I could. At least people would say amen and get excited about my sermon. You know what I'm saying? All right, so thank you. So in conclusion, there's this scene in the Gospels that has always haunted me. Um, it's, it's, the story, it's the story of Jesus. He uh, just left a parade in his honor. Okay, so he walked through the city of Jerusalem, and they're all screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he. And they're throwing palm branches at the ground so he can walk upon it. And the Pharisees rebuke him and say, you need to shut these people up. They're worshiping you, and that's blasphemy. And she says, well, I couldn't shut them up. <laughs> Even if I could, the stones themselves would worship me. And incidentally, he's kind of quoting a story in the Old Testament where God says, if Israel won't be my servant, I will raise up servants from these stones. God can raise up worshipers from stones. So then God leaves that scene, or Jesus leaves that scene, and he goes up onto this hillside overlooking the city of Jerusalem. So just like Jonah, Jesus is sitting on a hill overlooking a great city. Jonah is angry and he hasn't seen the good of this city. And God says, should I not be concerned with this great city? And Jesus is looking over the city. And the gospel writer, Mark, he tells us that Jesus wept over the city. And the Greek word that Mark uses is a very powerful word. It's not just that he sobbed. It's that he audibly wept. He was wailing over this city. <sighs> Oh, Jerusalem, he says. Oh, Jerusalem. And that scene haunts me because, well, 
I can't imagine what it would feel like to hear my Lord and Savior weeping and crying and wailing. Can you imagine what that would sound like? I think it would break me. He says, oh, Jerusalem, that city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I wanted to gather you like my children as a hen gathers her, her brood under her wing and you're not willing. And he, and he goes on and talks about how he, they, they, they will not see and they will not recognize the day of his visitation. Now, when I was a kid, I, I hardly ever heard my dad cry. Now, I hardly ever heard him cry. But if I ever did hear him cry, it would just create in me immediately an emotional response. I would just cry. I don't know why I would cry, but I don't know why he was crying. But if dad's crying, something's wrong, and I'm just going to cry. And Jesus is crying over this city. Should I not be concerned with this great city? I would do anything that you might come under my wing. And that haunts me. Because I think that the end of Jonah leaves us with that question. We are sitting on the hillside. We are overlooking that great city. And God says, how much more? You care for your comfort. How much more should you care for a city full of lost people who know not their left from the right hand? And I can't say that I'm moved to tears as Jesus is moved to tears. So I cannot say that my concern is the concern of God and the concern of Christ. One scholar said this, the question leaves the reader engaged and able to be aloof. We can't just say, that's an interesting story. We can't be aloof. The, this masterful short story ends in a way that forces application. It's primarily the reader on whom God's final words land. The reader who is left to ponder those, the meaning of these words. The reader who must decide what action to take next. That's a good story about a fish and a worm and some cattle. We can't do that. The story ends abruptly. How much more should I care for that city? How much does my son care for that city? How much do we care for this great city that we live in? And I think the best way to end that message would be just the end. Think about that. We need to think about that. I need you to think about that with me so that we're influenced and not aloof, but changed by the way we care and love for people more than things. Would you pray with me?